I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Everything that you have given me is from you. Know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may, be, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. This is the gospel of the Lord. Let's pray together as we stand. Almighty Father, as we come to your word, we ask that you will uh, grant us uh, your Holy Spirit so that we can understand what it is that Jesus is saying in this gospel reading. Um, We want to understand what Jesus is saying, and we want uh, to taste it, so to speak. We we want to know the reality that Jesus uh, is praying about. We want... Uh, Not just the idea, though we do want that, we want also the reality um, in us. And and that can only happen through the work of your Holy Spirit. So will you come uh, to us? Will you address our doubts? Will you soften our hearts? Will you grant us, above all, to see yourself, that your name would be made clear as we look at the face of Jesus Christ? And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Um, Well, everybody, please, uh, if you would, turn back to um, page uh, 7. That long gospel reading is uh, where we're going to be parked. So we took a little, uh, we peeked into the future with the kids, um, and we looked into Christmas, which was awfully fun. They did very well, didn't they? Don't you think so? Yes, there we go. Okay, okay. Um, and, uh, but, but now we're, we're going to jump back into Advent. And, um, and we're continuing this series in John chapter 17. Um, everybody knows, uh, if you ask any of the kids, um, my guess is, if, you know, explain Advent. And they'll say, um, it's that bit that we have to wait through uh, before we get to Christmas and all the presents happen. Um, Advent culminates in like Christmas presents and stuff like that. At least um, that's usually the way a lot of us think about it. Here's what I want to point out today. As we think about Advent, as we think about this uh, prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17, here's, here's something I want to point out. According to Scripture, according to Jesus, all of history, not just Advent, but all of history, culminates in a gift. 
And here's what I mean. So Advent, uh, as you may know, as we talked about last week, Advent um, is a season of the Christian year. It's the beginning of the church calendar. And it's a season of the church year where not only do we get ready for Christmas, that's kind of the obvious bit, but it's also a season of the church year where we practice as Christians looking at the big story of the Bible and looking through that big story of the Bible at the big story of all of humanity, of all of history, and looking at it and finding out, perhaps to our surprise, that there is meaning underneath all of it and underneath the story. Um, now, for some of us, um, if you've studied philosophy, if you've kind of reflected on life, you may be surprised. It may sound hopelessly naive to say that there's meaning uh, in the big story of humanity and history and so forth. But when we come to Advent, Advent sort of looks at us and says, I know it might be sound audacious, maybe naive, but nevertheless, wait, says Advent. Wait and look at the story again. Look at the big story. Look at the story of Scripture. Look at the, your, the story of your own life. Because you might be surprised at the meaning that you find. And so... During Advent, we're, so to speak, practicing looking for that unexpected meaning underneath history and underneath our own lives. And we're doing that by reading one of Jesus' last prayers. So this uh, excerpt that we just read um, from the Gospel of John, this is an excerpt of one of Jesus' last prayers before he's executed. And the context is he's praying for his disciples. He's praying for these 12, well, at this point, 11, because Judas has checked out. He's praying for these 11 first leaders of the Christian movement. Jesus is praying for them. And as we uh, listen in on Jesus' prayer, one of the things he does is he opens up part of the meaning of history. And according to Jesus, history culminates in a gift. Let me show you what I mean. Look down at that reading. You can't do it now, but do it a little bit later. Read through this reading and count how many times Jesus says, give, gave, or has given. It's a bunch of times. And there's more if you add the paragraph before and the paragraph after. This whole prayer is about how God gives something to Jesus Christ, and then Jesus gives that thing, there's a few things, to his disciples. And it's that gift that's the key to the meaning of Advent, more importantly, key to the meaning of history, and the key to the meaning of your life. So, let me explain. <clears throat> let me show you what the gift is. Take a look at the reading. Actually, wait, pause, before we do that. What do you think that gift might be? Do you like guessing about presents? Do you like shaking them? If, if you could imagine one gift that Jesus could give that would animate your life with meaning and animate all of history with meaning, what would that be? What would that gift be? Any ideas? Well, if you've got one, keep it in mind and look at verse 6. Jesus prays, <clears throat> I have, speaking to the Father, I have manifested your name to the people. Pause. Skip down to verse 8. For I have given them, there's the word given, given them the words that you gave me. 
Now, pause. There's several gifts in this passage, but the, the primary gift, and arguably the most decisive gift in all of history, is the gift, wait for it, of the name of God. Or put differently, God's words. Or put differently, God's truth. Jesus says it a few different ways throughout this passage. <clears throat> now, I realize that maybe doesn't uh, make a lot of sense. But so think about God's name for just a minute. Um, in the Bible, when the Bible talks about God's name, it does not simply mean um, the, you know, a verbal label. Uh, my name's Jim. Jim is just a verbal la label for this guy. Um, it, it, it just tells you what to call me. It doesn't tell you who I am. But when the Bible talks about God's name, it's different. Um, the Bible uses a, num a number of different uh, words for God. Um, sometimes God, sometimes Lord, sometimes Father. There's a, a bunch of different ones. And we're free to translate uh, those words into different words, different languages. So when the Bible talks about God's name, it's not so much telling us what we should call God. It's describing who God is at the core of his being, um, what it is that makes God who God is. Or you can think of it this way. Um, God's name is his identity combined with his mission. God's name is who God is, what God loves, what God desires to do that moves him to act in the world, to create everything, to redeem everything, to... And if you know all of that, if you know who God is and what God loves and what God has done, if you know all of that, then that's when you know God's name deeply. Now, Jesus here in this prayer says, Father, I've given away your words. I've given away your truth. Put differently, I have made, Father, your name clear to these first disciples you've given me. Okay, now, I can imagine somebody coming back and saying, oh, lovely. Does that matter, though? Like, who cares? Well, let me give you a backstory, okay? Can we do a backstory? This is the big, big overarching story. Do you remember um, in the Old Testament, <clears throat> in particular, do you remember the story of the golden calf? Remember that story? Let me remind you. Um, Israel was enslaved in Egypt. And they were enslaved in Egypt for a really, really long time. And during that time, they knew a little bit, <clears throat> excuse me, about God, but they had forgotten an awful lot. They didn't know much. And then, you can read about this in the book of Exodus, um, then what happens is God, they weren't looking for God, they weren't expecting God to do anything interesting, but then God invaded their lives. And uh, you may know the story. God uh, uses Moses to uh, rescue Israel, bring them out of Egypt, liberate them. And God brings them out of Egypt. They travel out of Egypt into the Sinai Desert and to the base of a mountain called Mount Sinai. And the idea is there at Mount Sinai, God and Israel were, were supposed to get acquainted. <clears throat> Israel was supposed to get to know who God is and, uh, uh, and God was going to reveal who God is, God was going to reveal his name. 
to them. So what happens is Moses goes up to the mountain to talk with God. And the idea is that then Moses was going to come down the mountain and fill Israel in on who God is, his name, his identity, his mission, so forth. But the problem is while Moses is up the hill, down the hill, there's trouble. There's trouble in River City. Um, down at the bottom of the hill, three people got that reference, but that's fine. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. It's just high culture. Don't worry about it. No, I'm kidding. Um, uh, down, down the hill, there's... Um, is, see, here, here's what happens. Israel decides that they don't really trust God. Israel decides, uh, despite the fact that God has liberated them miraculously from the greatest superpower of their day and liberated them and brought them out into the desert, nevertheless, Israel decides, sure, he liberated us, but he brought us out into the desert. And the desert is a scary, scary place. And there's no water and there's no food and we don't know where Moses is. So they come up with a contingency plan. They decide that they can't really trust God. So therefore, they, des they decide to redesign God into their own image. Actually, that's not entirely true. They, they make him into the image of a cow. But the point is that they want to take God and so to speak, reshape him, not visually so much as they want to shape him, God, to their identity and their mission. Which is to say, they loved their own name more than they loved God's name. Now, what happens is, um, bad stuff happens. Lots of the bad things happen after this. And what we find out when you back up and look at the big story of the Old Testament, what you find out is that Israel has some wonderful moments, but again and again, they keep doing the same thing. There's this cycle that begins to roll down the pages of the Old Testament. Um, Israel rejecting God's name, his identity and his mission, and then reinventing some small g false god after their own name. So they hoist upon God a kind of uh, imaginary projection of their perceived identity and their self-constructed mission in life. And what ends up happening, if you've read the Old Testament, this will sound familiar, what ends up happening is that they find themselves enslaved, not to Pharaoh, but enslaved to themselves, to their own name. And that cycle ends up perpetuating a cycle of destruction. And then we find out that it's not just Israel. Israel is a particular case study. The camera angle is on Israel. But we find out when we look at Israel that we're looking in the mirror. Because it's not just Israel, it's all nations. And it explains at least part of why it is that we can look down over the story of humanity and it looks strangely like a tragedy, doesn't it? Doesn't the 20th century look that way? Does the 21st look better? Why is it that we can look at the story of history and it seems eminently plausible to conclude that it's all meaningless? And part of the answer to that from the Bible is that when we look at the story of humanity, we see one of the most obvious themes to see is this cycle of destruction that rolls down Israel's story and our story and all the stories. Now, into that, what seems like a 
into that, the Bible begins to diagnose. And the Bible says, from one end to the other, that we were made, not for our name, but for God's name. We were made to look away from ourselves at God's truth, at God's word, that his identity and his mission was supposed to shape and remake and renew our identities and our mission. And therefore, when we obscure God's name, when we modify or tinker with God's name, we end up rejecting God and everything begins to disintegrate because it's just not the way the machine was meant to work. It's not the way the organism was meant to work. Everything disintegrates and we disintegrate. But here's the thing. It also explains why Advent is really good news. Doesn't sound like good news, does it? But it is good news. And the reason Advent is good news is that Advent comes and says that history, despite appearances, does not culminate in that cycle of destruction. Advent says that history culminates in a gift. What's the gift? The gift is the name of God. Jesus unveils God's name, which we had obscured. Jesus unveils God's truth, which we had plugged our ears and didn't want. Jesus unveils God's word. And so all of human history is this uh, rejecting and shutting our eyes, you know, confident that we can do better than God. And then God... Faced with our rejection, consistent as it is, God, in kindness, chooses. He, he could have just let the cycle of destruction perpetuate and just go on, but rather, God decides in his kindness to interrupt the cycle of destruction, to, to engage with a gift that we don't deserve. And he gave his son, Jesus Christ, so that Jesus Christ perfectly unveils God's name. When you look at Jesus, you see uh, who he is, what he has done, what he has taught. As that enters your ears and shapes your vision of who God is, you will begin to see God's name. You'll see God's identity and his mission. Look at the face of Jesus Christ. That's where you see it, says Advent and the text. Okay, uh, sidebar, r real quick. This explains why Christians love the Bible. Christians love the Bible because the Bible is perfectly designed, and this is going to cause some of us um, uh, difficulty, fantastic, let's, let's chat it through, perfectly displays Jesus, and Jesus perfectly displays the Father's name. And when you see the Father's name, Emmanuel, we get to see someone of matchless beauty, if we could see that, if, if that truth came home in our lives, Emmanuel, it would change every one of us and it would change us forever. Because when you look at the Father's name, you realize that Israel is wrong and that we've all been wrong because we thought that God couldn't be trusted and we thought it'd be better if we redesigned God after our identity and after our mission. But the problem is that leads to destruction. But when you look at the face of Jesus Christ and when you hear him teach and when you watch what it is that he do, does, then you see that the Father is utterly trustworthy, more trustworthy than you are or that I am. So let me see if I can try to, try to explain this. If you, just imagine for a moment, 
<clears throat> that you could see, that you could see all that God is. Imagine you could see uh, his love and his power and his truth and his goodness. Imagine that you could see everything that God has ever done and also you could see why it is that God did it. Imagine that the whole story of God was somehow laid out before you in some sort of story that you could take in. Now, the Bible's claim, friends, is that you would be looking, if you could do that, you would be looking at matchless beauty. Matchless beauty. But more importantly than that, not only would you be looking at a beautiful story, you would be looking into the face of a beautiful person. You would be looking into the face of a beautiful person whose beauty surpasses your capacity to enjoy it, and you would be bowled over by it. That's what seeing the Father's name is like. So, go back to the reading. Remember that this is a prayer. What is Jesus asking for? He's asking for a few things, but verse 17 sums it up. Verse 17, Jesus says, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. That's what Jesus wants for his disciples. What does it mean? Well, think of it this way. When you look at Jesus in the scriptures, when you see who he is, and when the Father's name become, begins to become clear, like I said before, you begin to realize that you can trust your Father in heaven. And then you realize that you must, as a point of urgency, trust your Father who is in heaven. And in that moment, that cycle of destruction that has rolled down the history of humanity and that has rolled through the story of your own life, that cycle of destruction begins to work backwards. So that instead of redesigning God to fit us, when you look at Jesus and see the Father's name, you will find within yourself a desire to redesign our lives to fit God. You'll want, to, you'll want your life to be redesigned so that every aspect of our lives match God's name. His identity becomes the pattern for our identity. And his mission becomes the driving desire of our mission. That's one, way it, it's one way to think about the idea of being sanctified, which is a really, really religious-y word, but you can think of it as God recalibrating our lives to his name, his identity, and his mission. Is that happening? And, and now this is where it has to get a little heavy because it's high stakes. Do you see verse 12? Jesus mentions the son of destruction. Do you know who he's talking about? He's talking about Judas. Judas had already walked out the door. And Judas took the opposite path. He preferred the cycle of destruction. And he rejected, having looked in the face of Jesus Christ, he rejected God's name. And he clung to his own name. And it ended in destruction. It ended in tragedy. And it's crucial that we see this because Judas is a preview of how all our stories end if we prefer ourselves over and against God's name. So be careful 
because the stakes couldn't be higher and the, and the, the destruction in that case doesn't end. Which explains why Jesus is so concerned. He is down on his knees in prayer. He is concerned that the Father keep the disciples just as close to his truth as possible, as close to his name, as close to his word as possible. Because the closer we are to the Father's name, that's where transformation occurs. Christians, you will never grow in obedience to Jesus Christ just by kind of gritting your teeth and trying harder. That's not how it works. Real obedience, real transformation, real holiness. The only way to grow in the power to resist sin do you need to grow in that power? Is when we are captivated by the name of God. It's not just knowing all the right Bible stories and not bubbling in the right answers on a theology quiz. It's when we are captivated by the name of God and the name of God, who he is, his mission and his identity captivates our hearts and makes us prefer his identity and his mission to our self-constructed ones. And if you're not a Christian yet, let me say this is what we're inviting you to. To see beauty that is beyond your capacity to enjoy it and then to spend the rest of your eternity conforming closer and closer to that beauty. Did you think it was just a moral improvement plan? Well, how do we do it? How does it get done? Well, look at verse 19. Jesus says... And for their sake, that is to say, in order that they might be sanctified, I consecrate or sanctify myself so that they might be sanctified in truth. J Jesus says, I consecrate myself or I sanctify myself so that they would be sanctified. What does that mean? Well, think of it this way. It means in this moment, Jesus was looking at his father. And Jesus in that moment was doing what you and I cannot do. Jesus was looking at all that his father is because Jesus knows his father perfectly. He saw his love and his power and his truth and his goodness. And he was looking back over all that God had done throughout the history of creation and why God had done it. The whole story was set before him. You and I can't have told that story, but Jesus can. And Jesus was looking at all of it. And he was seeing the beauty of the story. But much more than that, as Jesus looked at the beauty of the story, he was gazing at the beauty of his father. And he could see perfectly who his father is, his identity, and he could see perfectly what his father has done, his mission, and what it is his father loves. And it's a beauty, like I said, that exceeds our capacity to enjoy it, but it doesn't exceed Jesus' capacity to take it in. He could take it. And looking at the Father's name, Jesus chose, yes, I will sanctify myself. I will conform myself to your name perfectly, Father. And what did that mean? It meant he surrendered himself fully to the Father's mission. It means just a few minutes later, he got up off his knees and then he walked out and he gave himself up 
to the authorities over which he had ultimate authority. And he gave himself up to the guards who had no right to hurt him or kill him, but he said yes to the Father's identity and to the Father's mission, and then they hung him up on the cross. And why do you say, why does that matter? Why does that matter to us? This is why. Because when Jesus was hanging upon the cross, he was taking upon himself that cycle of destruction that we, will, that we deserved. And the meaningless of the history, and you look at it and you say, it's meaningless. And you look at the pain in your own life and you say, it's meaningless. And you look at your own moral failures and you say, oh, it's meaningless. And Jesus took all of that upon himself, that cycle of destruction rained down upon him as he died. He became what we are, a son of destruction, in order that we might become what he is, the child of the Father. And so when you look at Jesus upon the cross, that's when you see, you know, we can't see the whole story of who God is. We can't take it all in. But therefore, in a moment, one moment in history, you can look and see all of who God is, his love and his identity and his mission when you look at the face of Jesus Christ suffering for you and doing for you what you cannot do for, for yourself and making you into what you cannot be otherwise, a child of God. Look at Jesus on the cross and you will see the name of God. Who did you think he was? And then keep looking at him. And you will see the, the gift that makes sense of all of history. And then keep looking at him. And you will see the gift that makes sense of your life. And then keep looking at him. And you will see a rationale for why it is you should take everything that you hold dear, your own identity and your own mission, which you would not otherwise want to give up or surrender for anything. Why would you? But when you look at the face of Jesus Christ displaying the glory and the name of God himself, and when that breaks your heart, then you'll want to surrender. Because that is the surrender of freedom. And that is the great gift. And that is the message that Advent comes to you and says, will you consider again that this is the story that makes sense of all other stories? And will you allow this season not simply to be getting ready for Christmas, but rather, when you see that God has made all things ready for you to be received. And you say, but I'm a Christian, I know all that already. Oh, but that's how you grow. Did you think you grew other ways? That's why you're stuck. And if you're not a Christian, all has been prepared. And the cycle of destruction can end and reverse and the door is open. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.